we manage some of the most important data for 97 of the 100 top banks in the world, for 80% of the telcos we process in some way or touch, 50% of all retail transactions, you know, so it's just like essentially the backbone of the economy. We have 250,000 employees around the world. So, you know, from a personal information perspective, in 170 countries, that's a lot of people, a lot of laws. The heart of all of this is the data. As you look at algorithms, they are, in often cases, trained with all the data a company has or, or, you know, segments of data, some of which is personal information. Some of the gravest concerns that we see coming out of AI relates to things like facial recognition, which obviously there's nothing more personal than a face print, potentially, that could identify you out of a crowd. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 2% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back. I have Christina Montgomery, who is IBM's Chief Privacy Officer and Vice President. As Chief Privacy Officer, she oversees IBM's privacy program, compliance, and strategy around the world and directs all aspects of their privacy policies. Now, she also chairs their Artificial Intelligence Ethics Board, which is a team responsible for the governance and decision-making process for AI ethics policies and practices, which is no small task. And this year, y'all check this out, she was appointed to the U.S. Department of Commerce National AI Advisory Committee, which will advise the president and the National AI Initiative Office on a range of issues related to AI. Wow. Hello, Christina. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, privacy, what's up? Now, listen, What? so tell us, what does a chief privacy officer actually do in that role? Well, you summarized it well, uh, you know, at the, at the intro remarks. I mean, basically, I'm responsible for IBM's privacy compliance posture globally, right? So everything mm-hmm. that's needed to support that compliance. But at the same time, I get to be deeply involved in IBM's privacy strategy. So privacy is really a strategic imperative, Hmm. um, ensuring that we are protecting our clients' data even more broadly than personal information, right? Because we manage some of the most important data for 97 of the 100 top banks in the world, for 80% of the telcos we process in some way or touch, 50% of all retail transactions, you know, so it's just like essentially the backbone of the economy. When you think about all the data we're responsible for handling um, and building practices around on a global basis that the client, our clients trust us with, it's really, it it is a... um, Daunting if you think about it that way. Uh, but yeah. And then obviously we have 250,000 employees around the world. So, you know, from a personal information perspective, in 170 countries, that's a lot of people, 
a lot of laws. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you're the person recommending that everyone put their personal information on social media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just yeah. kidding. Openly yeah, so, fair. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it is a fascinating time to be in that role because we are moving at the speed of light when it comes to information and data. And you mentioned banking. It seems like banking, like they're the ones that seem to be on the cutting edge of security, or at least we all hope they are because they have you know of such a financial impact around the world. From your perspective, do you think that's the industry that's most, I'll say, aggressive with their with their privacy policies and on, on top of things there? I I, I look to banks um, mm-hmm. and, and our clients to emulate, you know, some of their practices. And particularly now, as we look more broadly at um, data and data governance, so sort of like the way we look at data as a company, it's not just this risk that can be. Um, you know, that can come from not protecting data properly mm-hmm. or, you know, a breach of trust from your clients as a result of that, but also the benefits that can be unlocked from using data in ways that are impactful to businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in order to do that, you know, you need practices in place and the way you, you know, I, I think um, if you look now, even at uh, AI governance, for example, which is a lot of our clients are just starting to look at. I think banks, you know, are are, are ahead in that regard. It's a general statement, but but mm-hmm. banking is a good example of a company that I mean, of a of an industry or a sector mm-hmm. that is, uh, I, I think, ahead of other sectors in this space. So, so maybe some listeners saying, okay, we have privacy, and then we have artificial intelligence, and you're leading in both these realms for say a leader of a company or a team right now, where does this, where does privacy and AI, like where's the intersection and where's it all coming together for them to be thinking about these two things together? Yeah. I mean, I think you need to back up and look at the heart of, um, the heart of all of this is the data. Right. It's the data that goes in. It's the data that's stored, that's needed mm-hmm. uh, outside of AI, that's just needed to operate businesses um, and to operate the digital economy. But then, as you look at algorithms, they are, in often cases, trained with all the data a company has, or or you know, segments of data, some of which is personal information. Some of the gravest concerns that we see coming mm-hmm. out of AI relates to things like facial recognition, which obviously there's nothing more personal than a face print potentially that could identify Mm -hmm. you out of a crowd, right? So there's a lot of personal information that goes into training AI algorithms in some segments. Gotcha. Just generally, you Mm -hmm. know, privacy programs um, have been built around having understanding and building rules around the personal information that you have. Well, how do you understand what personal information you use or process as as a company? You really need to look holistically at all the information, all the data you have as a company, right? In order to get at that. And so that's also where, because the privacy programs are mature, that's where you're seeing Mm -hmm. privacy programs start to take on these responsibilities for AI governance and the like as well. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that, Christina. I think it really helps frame it up in the leader's minds because there's, okay, we're, we're collecting data because we have payment data or we have employee yeah. data. 
and how it intersects with AI. And it sounds like, I mean, AI is, is fueled by the data. So having a privacy you know, plan in place there uh, is really going to be essential for leaders as they go forward. Now, from your perspective, what is, so sort of a two-part question here, what is the thing you are most excited about when it comes to AI? And on the flip side, what is the thing that you're least excited about? or maybe even fearful about? Uh, well, AI today um, and, and into the future, I think we're, we're finding benefits of AI in addressing some societal cha- challenges, I think, are um, uh, really exciting. So if you look at, for example, we acquired a company called Invisi. Um, and Invisi is basically a sustainability suite. It gathers all the data across a particular company's real estate, say, for example, right? And can provide insights that will drive efficiency, energy efficiency, for example, within a particular company's Mm. infrastructure. Um, The use, the ability to bring data together to address issues for a company, things like climate change. You know, I think there's a tremendous amount of potential that could come from AI. Um, as far as risk, you know, I do think we need to uh, look at different business models, for example, like business models that are built on personal information, knowing as much about an individual as possible in order to feed them information without transparency, like mm. social media platforms, for example, algorithms like that are concerning to me, and particularly. The impacts that those algorithms could have on children. Um, those are areas for me personally where I have concerns with um, where AI is going and how we put guardrails in place. Wow, great, great stuff. Uh, I've got to ask you: uh, Have you talked to the president about this yet? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. No, not yet. But if the president wants to hear a recap, you can just forward him your interview. I think okay. that would be great. I think I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be on board with sharing that uh, information with with that person. All right. So we could keep talking about this, but I also want to make sure that we get into your illustrious career here, which is pretty darn interesting. So one thing is, you know, you go to your prof- LinkedIn profile. I'm like, okay. Yeah. We're, and we're talking, we got English major, English major turns into chief privacy officer advising the president on this, uh, working with almost all the top banks in the world. Uh, where, what was that path? And when did you discover you were going to, I guess, get off the literary route and then go in this new direction? Yeah, I mean, I think that speaks to not just the changes I've had in my own career, but the changes in the mm-hmm. world that have happened, right? In mm-hmm. in I've had a lengthy career, I would say, at this point in time. Uh, so, um, you know, I I was originally, believe it or not, on a career path to medicine. Mm. Um, and I tell you this because it's kind of informed how my career has shaped over time. I just decided basically that I didn't like what I was studying. 
and that I needed to enjoy what I was doing every day. Hmm. So I thought to myself back when I was, you know, 18 um, and making this choice, what is something I enjoy doing and I'm good at reading books and writing. So that's essentially why I became an English major, not because I had any end career in mind, but what I was going to do Mm -hmm. with that. Um, And so even over the course of my law firm career, I've had multiple. So I started a law firm and then I joined IBM fairly early on in my career. And over time, I have been, I've touched every aspect of the law, essentially. I've been an employment lawyer, an IP lawyer, a deal lawyer, an environmental lawyer, an antitrust lawyer, a cyber lawyer. I've been in governance as the corporate secretary. I've been in management as sort of a chief of staff to the general counsel. Um, So, and then most recently now, this privacy and AI ethics role. And I think what that says is a couple of things for people. Um, You know, you're never stuck in a certain place. Um, You can always try something new and learn something new. If I can learn all of these areas, maybe, you know, I wasn't the um, number one antitrust lawyer, for example, in the country, but I knew enough to be able to give advice and to be able to learn a particular area as a general lawyer. That's essentially what a general lawyer does, spot issues, Mm -hmm. advise where you can, bring in experts where you can't. Um, And for me, that, that type of career is one that has enabled me to have so much breath in my skills. Oh. And the 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 great part is now in the space that I'm in in privacy and AI ethics, it's really a macro area. It's not a niche area, right? The 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 problems that are presented by artificial intelligence and emerging technologies are really not technical problems in and of themselves. They are socio-technical problems. And there is such a breadth of backgrounds on my team and on the uh, in IBM, um, people that are working on and interested in these technology ethics issues. And you need all of those backgrounds and experiences to be able to have a holistic view and understanding of the benefits and the risks presented by technologies. So I really think that the broad background has led me to being um, able to be a leader in the space that we're in now, in this space of AI ethics and tech ethics. Yeah, and I'm, I'm tr- that is fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to piece together that whole thing because because one one thing I feel like there's a there's a uh, sort of propulsion for the in the world to be a subject matter expert and. People yeah. want companies, they want to hire the expert in AI or the expert in data privacy or the expert in, in this specific legal matter. And a lot of those fields that you mentioned, at least from my perspective, including medicine, are specialists ruled by specialists. Uh, you know, you're even the parts of the law that you mentioned, yet you, you said uh, you're never, and I really, really like this. Uh, you're never truly stuck in your career. What do you and, and what do you think the key was for you touching these areas and moving from one to the other and, and covering so much darn ground? Was it like relationship building? Was it just learning? Or I mean, what? Um, what comes to mind? 
Well, uh, I really think for me, it was a combination of probably three things, right? It's first of all, not wanting to work in a space where I was bored, like having this continued need to be stimulated um, at work and to work on interesting things that are making a difference. So that led me to, if I got, if I thought I knew enough in a particular job, I got to the point where it felt more routine to me. It was mm-hmm. easier, certainly, for me to do that job and stay in it. But I always asked for, hey, I need something new. I need to learn something new. Um, and uh, the second is really related to that, which is um, having that growth mindset, really understanding and having a strength in the soft skills. And I think that's part of why when if you go back to even you know, why I chose to be an English major, I was always a good writer, right? I mean, I think part of it is leaning into what you're good at and building and growing your strengths instead of spending time, a lot of, not that I don't spend time on things I'm not good at, but I I, I spend more time and lean into things I am good at and make them better. And so I think that ability and bringing something as generic as writing and communication skills into each new role also led to, you know, my success. And then the third is, I think you really just have to be somebody that people want to work with. Um, Because in the end of the day, you're working with people, you you need your colleagues, you need your teams. Um, And uh, if you could make life easier for your boss, if you could make life easier by providing clear, you know, guidance and empowering your employees, um, over time, you know, making other people shine helps you shine. Um, and so I think just, and being somebody who's, who's, who people want to spend time with at work, I think really you can't understate that. Um, so those are things for me that I think have, have helped to grow my career over time. I really like that. And the, the simplicity, but sometimes the forgotten thing about building great relationships, because if people want to work yeah. with you and you, and you work great across functions, they may call you that day when they have a job opening. They're like, well, mm-hmm. I kind of like, you know, Christina's already always been helpful to me. Uh, and it seems like she'd be a great person to interview for this job or something along those lines versus, Hey, you know, somebody down the road. Yeah. They really know their stuff, but man, they're a pain to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> You can't understate the importance of that, right? Yeah. So, so, so good. Uh, wh- so what's the one trait you wish you could instill on in every employee? And why do you believe that's so important? I believe it's proactivity. Like, I, I really, I feel like people need to understand a career is long, right? I had a, a boss once tell me your career is a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? Um, and if you want to stay in the same role, you know, and not, you don't aspire, that's fine. Everybody makes different choices. But I really think proactivity is critically important. Taking control and ownership over what you want to do and where you want to go. And as I said, if that means you're happy being a subject matter expert in, in, at, at a, a certain level and you're comfortable with that's being proactive. That's saying I'm good with this. Right. But if you want more, or you want something different, you need to kind of don't sit back, especially in a big company 
Don't sit back and wait for somebody to tap you on the shoulder. Start directing and demonstrating, you know, uh, what, what you can do, what you're capable of, um, and what you're interested in, frankly. I think that's some great insight there. And the world would be different if there were more proactive people out, out in the world. And they're, they're out there, but if there were more, it would be even a cooler place to be, I suspect. And I think when in what I've heard and what I've read and experienced that it's harder in a company when so many leaders and their teams work remote. Yes. Because proactive means, well, you're not going to just, you're not bumping into people perhaps as much. You've got to proactively create those moments of interaction. What do you do? And obviously by IBM, I mean, come on, you're around the globe. You're probably dealing with people around the globe. Well, and they don't, maybe don't see, see them that often. What are you doing to create that proactive behavior on your team? Well, it is a challenge. Uh, and I have a very global team. So in my office where I sit in North Castle or Armonk, um, I've got less than 10 people from my extended team that sit in the same building as me. Most of them are elsewhere. So I don't see mm-hmm. them every day. So we have and different structures work for different and different tactics and techniques, I think, work for different people. But we have regular uh, meetings with our extended team where we share what everybody else is doing. I think that's important. Uh, I have hopefully, and I've said this many times, sort of an open door policy on Slack or um, certain meetings. I'll try to invite people to when I'm traveling and I do a lot of traveling, I always make it a point to visit the local team. Um, in wherever, you know, wherever I'm showing up, or if people are here to make time, if people are visiting headquarters to make time to spend with them one-on-one, I think all of those things are important. So I think it's a combination of the connections you can make online through Zoom meetings, in other words, and and other techniques, Mm -hmm. but then also you're never going to replace that personal connection. So whenever we have an opportunity to get a team together locally or to visit with somebody who's, or to make time for somebody that's visiting from out of town. I absolutely prioritize that because that face-to-face connection, you know, we might not get back to it fully, or we might not have ever had it in my team. We never fully had it because we were always such a global team. We need to be. Um, But again, it's just taking advantage of those opportunities when you can meet face-to-face. I like that in a technology driven company executives still say, don't forget the personal connection and don't forget the impersonal connection when you can make it create advice. And we just had a holiday celebration, by the way, you know, for my extended team, it was virtual, but you know, we played games and people sent in pictures and, you know, we shared, uh, you know, traditions uh, that we have with our families. I mean, so you do try to bring in a little bit of that personal to the virtual world. It's not the same, but when you're a virtual team, it's, it's, it is helpful. It does help to make those connections. Yeah. For me, one of the messages that I'm hearing that the leaders listening, I'm really hoping or making a note of is that you've got to be more proactive in a remote working environment. You can't just say, Hey, let's go down and have some lunch and celebrate the holiday. Talk about our traditions. You got to set the meeting up, 
tell people what's going to happen, help them be prepared and show up really in a different mindset than a work mindset in a, you know, more of a festive, you know, you know, way. And it's, um, it's just too easy at the speed of the holidays to let that go. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, you're really making the time. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you've got plenty of other things to do, but uh, you're taking time out to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's important. It's important for your team members and it's important to celebrate accomplishments. So we definitely spend a lot of time, you know, both celebrating accomplishments and planning collectively as a team um, and setting priorities and and helping to ensure that others, you know, that the team feels like they have a stake in the direction that the department is going and the decisions that we're making and the work that they're doing every day. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox a great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Over the years, what's been your biggest source of inspiration? And when's a challenging time that I got you through? Uh, well, I, hands down, my biggest source of inspiration is my family. Hmm. You know, they, they, I have um, my husband and two kids who are now adults. Um, so it's, it's been, uh, you know, they, they grew through their career. They grew up during my career as my career was growing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, they were always so supportive collectively as a group, the three of them, uh, you know, if, if, and I would bounce, you know, things off of my, my kids, um, as, so I worked. I actually worked part-time until my daughter, who's my youngest, was five. So while I had my children very early year in the early years, I was home two days a week. And that was wonderful. And then I went back full-time when she went to school. So I had at that point a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. And over the course of years that followed, I would get new opportunities And, you know, I would talk to them, hey, this one means I'm going to be away some, I have to do business travel, or I have to do this. And what do you guys think? And they would always tell me, mom, you're going to make us crazy if you're home. So you need to go take that. (laughs) We know you need to do that. So um, they and my husband, who's filled in the gaps and more so over the years have been really my biggest source of inspiration. Um, And, you know, just knowing that they're Crowd and now my son is in law school, so uh, I, I actually couldn't have screwed them up too much because he's following my career path. Despite my <laughs> so best efforts, he's become know. a success. Well, no, that I think that's great, and it, it sounds like it's that. I think a lot of executives and leaders face this, right? Where you have an opportunity, and it's 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 going to affect your family, yep, positively, and some sometimes not as positively. Um, and you can't always anticipate everything that's going to happen if you take on the new role or you start the new business or whatever, but it, but it sounds like you're a fan of having the dialogue with the family and getting them involved so they can learn and they're part of the journey. Yeah. I mean, that's how I always did it. Uh, That might not work for everybody, but you know, for, for us as a family that definitely worked. I'd present the pros and cons. I don't know in the end, honestly, if I would have made a different decision if I was told, oh no, please, please don't take that job. <laughs> uh, but I think I would have. I'd like to think that I that I would have. 
uh, that I didn't ask just to ask and get out of this kind of guilt saga of like, oh, I need to bless the choice that I'm going to make anyway. Yes, yes. But there's always that in the back of my mind. But yeah, I mean, they 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 know what drives me, I think. Hmm. Um, and when, you know, when anybody in your family is sad, you're sad, especially a child, right? When anybody in your family is happy, you're happy. Like, I think you kind of can that that's that's the value of at least in you know my family having and being there for each other and they've always been there for me so they're definitely the biggest source of my inspiration yeah and, and, and entering into that dialogue with them in those moments too i was just thinking your role modeling behavior for them uh you want them to bring their big life decisions to you you know when they're younger uh, and have that conversation. And it's really cool when you're on the precipice of a big opportunity that you're at least engaging in it, even though obviously parents get the final, just yeah. <laughs> get the final <laughs> choice. Uh, when's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career and how did it lead to your success or growth on down the road? Yeah. So everybody over the course of a career has had things they aren't great at. Right. And, um, or things that didn't go as planned. So, um, an example for me is, uh, a job I was in for a short period of time, um, in part because other things came up, but it, it was involved, um, uh, significant negotiations. So it was a complex, uh, complex negotiation job that also required a lot of travel and unpredictable travel. Hmm. And for me, that's always been something that uh, I, I needed balance and predictability in my life, despite the fact that I'm a very hard worker. And as a lawyer, you're not always going to have that predictability, but those uh, jobs where you could be called out tomorrow to go and negotiate a deal when I had little children um, and even now, frankly, as an adult with children out of the house, uh, I just, um, they're not the best fit for me. So I went into this negotiation, wasn't as prepared. I was probably more stressed than anything else because I let all the backdrop of not knowing when I was going to be going home and was I going to, and all the guilt about having my children at home. Um, and not being able to tell them when mom's coming back and the uncertainty of that and the complexity, I think of the issues where I didn't take the time to really sit down and become an expert in it for all those reasons. Right. And, and that was not my most successful job. Uh, and I remember sitting down with my boss at the time and he's like, well, that didn't go very well, did it? And I was like, <laughs> no, it didn't. Um, now Whoa. I know looking back, I could have improved upon that, but sometimes jobs just aren't a fit, you know, or, or match for where the individual is at that point in time or the individual's interest. And in my case, that job certainly was not a fit. Um, and, uh, for all those reasons, I think it led to it being sort of what I would look back on as, you know, one of my, um, failures, but it also led me to, uh, learn this is a space I don't like, right. I think mm -hmm. you're never going to know what you don't like or what you're strongest at if you don't have failures. Um, and so certainly, you know, that type of job isn't one that I've gone back to for that reason. Yeah. It goes the old saying, uh, you either win or you, what do you, you either win or you learn, you win or you yeah. learn. Yeah. Uh, losing is, or, or not 
you know, not being successful uh, is, is, a, is one of the deepest ways to learn. And success is a terrible teacher. It's, it's really hard to reflect on those great successes and be like, what, the, what could I have done better? It's much the ones that stick out are the ones that didn't go as well. And, and you know, congratulations to you for having the courage to look at that and say, hey, this was just not, not a good fit. Um, and I suspect you've been able to channel that into the career that you have now. And by the way, I've had, I've worked in negotiations and in, in some pre in some companies previously. I know exactly how stressful that is <laughs> to have to fly and be there waiting and in conversation. And for a while, um, I believe I thrived in it, but after a while I was like, wait, this is not this is not conducive to the lifestyle for me that I want to have longer term. Yeah. What are three success strategies that all employees need to understand? Uh, well, I talked about this a little bit earlier. I think, you know, employees should understand that they are the drivers of their career. Uh, you need to make decisions for yourself. Um, over the course of your career, mm-hmm what you want to work on and where you want to do it, right? And what you want to leave behind. I think those are all really important and be proactive. Don't let the world drive you, right? Take control. Um, The second is the world is changing so, so quickly. The most important skill that anyone can have is that ability to learn and that curiosity. So I think um, you always have to have curiosity and uh, a growth mindset. And then I think the third, and I mentioned this before, is you're working with people, be someone that others want to work with. Mm-hmm. Remember that to respect people uh, and to uh, be the kind of person that people seek out um, in the end, uh, be helpful. And, you know, I think that's, that's really, that's mm-hmm. really important to remember. Great strong tips to finish up on and a great recap of the interview here. I think a lot of wonderful things in here. Thanks for offering so much interesting information on artificial intelligence and privacy and really bringing, I think, our audience into that world and kind of behind the curtain a little bit of what it's like to be in that role and your your interesting career path and some great advice for all leaders. So thanks for coming on the show, Christina. Sure. Thanks for having me, Ben. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.